Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. Real Organic Project is a farmer-led movement that provides an add-on certification held by over a 1,000 certified organic family-owned operations across North America. Real Organic Project strives to uplift farms working within the spirit, not just the letter, of organic principles. Real Organic certified farmers use practices that are centered around the foundational organic principles of soil-based crop production and pasture-based livestock agriculture. To remain accessible to all types of farmers, Real Organic Project fundraises year-round to keep this certification available at no cost to farmers. You can apply today at realorganicproject.org forward slash thrivingfarmer. That is realorganicproject.org forward slash Thriving Farmer. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with yet another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. Today, my guests are Ian and Rachel Harding, who are the co-owners of Wet Not Farms, a sub-one-acre biointensive farm on leased land in Marietta, South Carolina. Ian and Rachel started the farm in 2019 after Ian finished a season-long internship at BioWay Farm the previous year. They grow specialty cut flowers and mixed vegetables on a semi-permanent 30-inch bed system. Ian heads up the field operations and now works on the farm full-time, while Rachel handles most of the office while also working full-time for a bank. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Oh, yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about, I mean, right before we actually got on, you were mentioning where you are in South Carolina. So share a little bit about the location and um, kind of the history of that. Cool. Yeah. So um, the land we lease is a little over four acres. It's in a narrow valley right on the edge of the Blue Ridge Mountains. Um, Yeah. We've got like a little creek that goes just on the border of one side of the farm. Um, Historically, the upstate of South Carolina has been one of the poorer regions of the state. Um, Yeah, we got some of the, I guess, Appalachian culture Mm -hmm. going on. There's been, I mean, I'm sure there still is, but like lots of moonshine and stuff like that. Yeah. In the woods. Yeah. So that's where all the songs were written about and, you know, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so talk to me, what does the weather look like? Cause you said you're in a narrow Valley. Does that affect kind of your, your, what's going on? Yeah, it does. Um, so get tons of rain there, like even more than we do at our house, which is what, seven miles in Interesting. line from there. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the reservoir is there and they, that, the guy that runs it was telling me one time that they've gotten up to like 120 inches of rain one year, oh, wow. something like uh-huh. that. Um, whereas house it's 58 inches is the listed annual yep. average, but just in the summertime, a lot of times like the pop-up thunderstorms are, they get hung up kind of on the mountains right there. So we'll get rain there and not at our house. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. So how has that affected your growing systems? Have you changed up how you, or, you know, altered how you compare to what normal people do to, to kind of like plant things, or you just have to dodge rain showers? A little bit of the, yeah, dodging rain showers. Um, I, in terms of cultivation for weed control, it does affect that. Like it, I mm. don't think it's quite as effective uh, yeah. No, like you disturb a weed and it falls on wet ground and it's, man, you're not really doing much to it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So do you switch to a lot more ground cloth or you just try to cultivate when you can? Cultivate when I can. Um, I like landscape fabric aesthetically, basically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It evolves and it, it does get really hot. So we're trying um, some methods where we're not using but using like a craft paper that I'll biodegrade with um, compost on top. So we'll like transplant into that. Um, and so far, it's looking pretty good. But 
um, we're kind of in the testing phase of that. Oh, that's interesting. So share a little bit more about that craft paper. I'm assuming like it's a 48 inch roll or, and how are you holding that down? Is it with uh, staples or actually like uh, sandbags? Just the, the compost. Yeah. So I um, was poking on Uline. I was looking for the 30 inch wide um, cardboard rolls uh-huh. on there um, to ship it. We have to do freight shipping. They don't do UPS on that, but they do for the craft paper rolls. So I was like, Oh, Let's give that a go and see what happens. Will we get the 30 inch wide roll for okay. that? Interesting. And then you just put a, a little bit of compost on top of that and then plant through that. Yeah. Enough to hold it down and then dibble a hole through the paper and then the yep. compost holds it down. Okay. Very cool. Um, now you're, you're, you do a lot of flowers and you also do vegetables. What kind of is your mix? Let's see. For the vegetables, we're focusing a lot on the uh, like high dollar per square foot stuff. So baby greens, lettuce. Um, then we do the the normal like tomatoes, peppers, mm-hmm. cucumbers, that sort of stuff in the summer. You know more of the flower stuff, right? <laughs> it's a lot of fruit, yeah, as well in the south. Um, we try to not do anything that is past zone eight. Um, so we do some winter flowers uh, within like a flower tunnel. Um, last year, I decided to do things on the field um, and not cover anything. And then we realized we're going to um, do a, the Lisa Mason Ziegler um, and where everything's kind of covered in those short hoops um, until they get established. And, um, so far they're looking pretty good, pretty healthy. So. Gotcha. So, so to kind of recap that I couldn't quite hear you there. Um, you were saying that your most, everything is going under low hoops now. Low hoops just throughout the winter. Um, and back to your question on, uh, how we've kind of had to change our, um, our ways of growing with all the wet we've had to face. Um, a lot of our stuff out just because we do see a little bit of fungal issues. Mm. So we're just trying to give them a little more room to breathe. Gotcha. Yeah. And this, this is our second field we've grown in. Our first one um, was like absolutely full sun, like no shade anywhere. So the, the flowers there, we would really pack them in and they or and some of the vegetables too. You could pack them in tighter than, in our current field gets partial shade and yeah, just not very good air movement. Gotcha. Yeah. Now that makes a huge difference. Um, and so you do a wide range of flowers. I'm seeing everything from um, poppies to tulips to um, ranunculus and um, yarrow, all sorts of fun things. <laughs> what would you say is your favorite flowers to grow? Oh, well, I love, you know, the showy flowers like Italian poppies and ranunculus. Um, I don't know, but there's also a lot of variety um, that you get with zinnias and there's just so much, um, you know, hominess to it. And yeah, so. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm definitely seeing some dahlias as, as well here. Um, do you overwinter your dahlias in the ground where you are with the warmth or is the uh, wetness make that not a good thing for the winter? No, yeah, we dig them up um, just because we have so um, like wet winter here. Yeah. We just probably would be prone to wet. And at Christmas, you know, we had a very unusual three degree freeze yeah. um, here. So we definitely would have lost all, you know, most, if not all the dahlias, if we had left them in the ground. Yeah. 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 We got that same freeze. And I think we were at minus eight or minus nine degrees is how cold we got, which was, Holy cow. Yeah. That was, that was pretty, pretty robust. Um, I will say though, we had canna lily bulbs in the ground and um, they were mulched heavily with wood chips. And then we put about a foot and a half of straw on top of that. And I just dug some up yesterday to ship out because we sell the tubers and they looked great and they were actually actively starting to grow a bit. Oh, so, nice. <laughs> yeah, I think there's, 
I think there's some, again, I think the moisture would be the bigger thing. Obviously they don't like moisture. So uh, if you were able to tarp them and, you know, have, keep them with dry feet, but yeah, I just, I, again, I love dahlias. I just hate digging them up and planting them every year. So. Yeah. I love the way they grow. Um, and cause once we put them in like, yeah, just flowers keep coming up and it's, mm-hmm. it's the messing with the tubers. It's the, yeah. <laughs> the only thing I don't like about them, but yeah. Well, eventually I want to sell the tumors, not all of them, but divide them and sell them. Because people around here make a lot of money and you don't have to be local. You can ship tubers easily. Yeah. So um, that's something I would like to incorporate in the future, but I've just been trying to get better at it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's talk through a little bit of the marketing. So how do, where do you sell your products? Uh, farmer's market, the traveler's rest farmer's market is the one we sell at. And that's been pretty good. Um, we also sell some to local florists with the flowers, a teeny bit to restaurants. Um, and then we've done some retail with some kind of like food hubs in the area. It has been pretty cool. We want to expand that bit a little, the restaurant and um, retail more yeah um so that's a farmer's market um you are you selling any you any csa or is it just vegetables on your stand kind of how does that what's your marketing channels yeah we just do the like a la carte vegetables on the stand and then um market bouquets for the flowers and we have like a couple different sizes of those it's kind of a, a grab and go um one of our goals for this year though is we do want to do like the CSA light, like salad centric mm-hmm. CSA to get, have more of the customers be our customers than just they're at the farmer's market and happen to buy from us. We want them to be there to pick mm-hmm. up something from us and then buy more stuff. Gotcha. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so then with the farmer's market, is that just you guys that go, do you have to bring help? And then um, like how big of a stall do you set up? Yeah, we do like a 10 by 10 tent is um we're considering doing like a an extra one for like 10 by 20 mm-hmm. we haven't decided if we're going to do that yet um and yeah it's usually just rachel and i we are trying to focus on the customers uh-huh. um so we would really like to have um an extra help uh at the at the farmers market, so we can focus on re- talking to our customers and just developing those relationships further. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we found that when we went from ten by ten to ten by twenty, we more than doubled sales because it really allows people to come into your stand better, and they feel like just they just feel like they're more in instead of just being outside and looking in. Um, yeah, it was just really interesting to watch the dynamic when you have more space. Sweet, yeah, because that. With the flowers and vegetables, it's kind of like, yeah, there's not a lot of room to <laughs> You're kind of yeah. competing display with it. Space. Yeah. You know, we're trying to do that whole U. Um, so. Yeah. Yeah. And a 10 by 10 is just not quite right enough to do a U unless your sides are like outside of your 10 by 10. Um, and people need their personal space too. And so that's another aspect of yeah. it. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Yeah. So then with that, does that market go year round or are you seasonal? It's seasonal. Um, it goes May um, till end of September. So start of May, end of September. They, they do have a few like winter series uh, where it's mm-hmm. like once a month or, you know, the Mary market. Um, so we generally can have at least one market a month with them. Um, they just kind of do it in little uh, series like that. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I noticed here um, on your, your website is you have a blog article about forcing branches. Yeah. Um, so talk a little bit about that. Is that something that you provide that information for like your customers so they know, or just, is that more of a general blog article that you wrote? Uh, it's a little bit of both. Um, in the February market, I really didn't have um, flowers. So mm-hmm. I was just cutting branches and I was um, trying to build some awareness around uh, forcing branches and also use that as um, building trust with our customers and giving them free resources as well. Um, mm-hmm. 
they want to buy our branches, that's great, but it doesn't have to always be from us. So mm -hmm. what kind of branches do you put into your bouquets? Um, we have a lot of the forsythia around our mm -hmm. farm, but also spirea is another favorite. Um, and there's several um, varieties that do well here. Um, and then the, the peach blossoms, um, mm -hmm. or are they cherry blossom trees? Uh, there's also a more compact one on our farm that we cut off of. So, and we're just looking for more um, woodies like that to add um, to our bouquets, so. Yeah, yeah. Um, with all your moisture, it sounds like you might be good for some willows. <laughs> oh, <Yep>. yeah. <laughs> I yeah. have one rooting right now. Very cool. Um, yeah, one of the things we've been working on is expanding our willow line. So we now have, gosh, I think we're up to 12 or 13. Um, and I want to add another couple. Because what we found is that, yes, you can cut them all and they all will hold in the cooler, but there is also a natural progression that um, if you have the, I have the uh, Woody Cut Stems book, and that actually talks in detail about like, if you get certain varieties, you can have like a two to three month, basically series of different ones that will start, you know, to butt out. Oh, nice. Yeah. So I've got a, I realized I got a few gaps in our, our mix, which I need to kind of fill up. So um yeah. Um, so, okay. So at the market then, are you guys um, organic or are you like low spray? How do you kind of market yourselves in that regard? Yeah. So we follow all the organic practices. We're not certified. Mm -hmm. um, I've been thinking about doing the certified naturally ground uh -huh. just because that's, yeah. And the reason we haven't certified is we're on like with the least land, like the first field we we're at, we were there for two seasons that mm -hmm. so we wouldn't even have like we would have gone through the waiting period to transition to organic yeah before we ever had anything to sell basically yeah um so that's the main reason we haven't done that also yeah record keeping um, yeah, we need to get, we need to get better at that this year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so one of the things I see you do at your market is a, um, flower bar. Talk to me a little bit about how that's worked out for you. Well, that was truly our first one, um, okay. a couple weeks ago and people just were thrilled about it. They loved it. Um, I guess last year I would always bring extra buckets of flowers and people kind of were like trying to do this already so mm -hmm. I was like all right I've got all these buckets of flowers um let's just go ahead and set up a flower bar um and I didn't really think much about it except um you know kind of what like set a certain price per stem mm -hmm. um and then some flowers that are cheaper to grow were just considered filler mm, so okay. um people re really responded well to that um and had a lot of fun yeah they really loved it it was the reaction was really good <laughs> so you mentioned some flowers are cheaper to grow which ones do you consider those to be well in the spring um daffodils okay uh, they're just a lower price point um but also we just had a lot of daffodils around that we didn't plant. So we've been using those. Mm -hmm. um, you could also say, you know, the, the woodies that you're forcing or um, mm -hmm. they're blooming out, you could use that as well. So those are kind of the cheaper ones in the spring. Um, and then anything grown from seeds, just going to be cheaper as well. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so let's talk a little bit about the overall aspect of the farm. Do you try to rotate uh, beds between flowers and vegetables or do you more keep those two areas separate on the farm? We mix them in. It's more um, how they want to be watered. Okay. Because uh, a lot of the vegetables we do overhead watering, a lot of the flowers don't really like that. Um, so we kind of have zones of tape versus wobblers. And so, but within the drip tape zone, like we can have vegetables and flowers that both prefer that type of irrigation. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. And then, um, do you try to do any sort of like, um, uh, like 
a bear fallow or like downtime between crops, like for a certain number to control weeds, or you're flipping and going right to the next crop? Yeah, mostly flipping and going right to the next crop. If there's space in between, we have silage tarps that will uh -huh. out to kind of like as a placeholder, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and then talk to me a little bit about the restaurants. I think you said you work with some restaurants. How does How do you make that work? So far, not so great, but uh, okay. <laughs> no, it's more a relationship based um, where they feel comfortable to just send a message through Instagram. Yeah, so it's kind of like working with the chef, figuring out what they want, when they want it, get there on time. Um, one of the restaurants I work with, like I used to work at, so. Like I have a pretty good rapport with them. I don't sell them tons of stuff, but like it's always like a convenient stop. Uh, we also try and line our restaurants up in a essentially like a straight delivery line uh -huh. into mm -hmm. Greenville, which is the, the bigger city around here. So we'll go through like TR into Greenville, but if it's over, even though it may be closer to us, but it's not in line to Greenville, we we haven't really branched out to areas like that so far. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's totally understandable. Um, and then, uh, how are they ordering? Are you just, uh, again, Instagramming them a list of what you've got or. Mostly over like yeah, Instagram or text is the main thing we use. Um, square is our point of sale mm -hmm. Squarespace. I get confused with those. Um, so <laughs> we can, we can send invoices that way. Um, whenever they're ready to order, they can also if they want to order from our website and we can change that to the wholesale pricing form. We're yeah. testing out a wholesale page uh, right now. It's just for Flores, but I think I'd like to test that for food soon too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we are, we don't do a lot of wholesale, but we are actually hoping to uh, put it right through our, um, our local line store. Yeah. I've, we've, I've heard a lot about them and I've wanted to check it out, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll let you know how it goes this year. Um, cool. the, big, the biggest holdup right now, which they're actively working on is their subscription part of it. So, um, cause we do our CSA through Farmigo and we are not interested in continuing that relationship any longer. If <laughs> um, <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's just, it's just, anyway, the, I would say the main problem is the customer service is really challenging. I mean, like if, if like you got a customer as a problem, you kind of need to be able to get them an answer really soon. And Farmigo says they have 48 hours to get back to you for customer service. And that just isn't, Oh yeah. <laughs> that's not fast enough. So um, local line is literally like 15, 20 minutes, you know, a lot of the okay. time they're, they're really fast to get back to you. So um, and they have a chat feature too. So again, that's not my department on the farm, but um, yeah, our, our team seems to be happy with that so far. Sweet. Um, so talk to me a little bit about kind of the, the cycle of the year. Do you guys um, pretty much really heavy in the summer and then a lot less in the winter? I know you are only going to markets for like once a month in the wintertime. Yeah, we slow it down in the winter for sure. Because, um, yeah, we, just, we haven't had the markets yet to sell a lot. And then kind of the transition in between the two is hard since we're on a, a smaller land base. Like it's really hard to... Um, crops that are still producing and selling a lot to put in kale that won't really start producing until, you know, kind of the dead of winter or whatever yeah. comes into its own. It's like, ah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, that is the same. We've same problem of just if spring and fall or just the farm has literally completely full and we do a lot of strawberries. And so yep. that's the problem is there's just no more space. I mean, last year it was like, okay, these three beds are coming out so I can get three more beds of garlic in. It's literally what kind of the, <laughs> the discussion was. And uh, we planted garlic where I'd never thought I'd plant garlic before, but um, <laughs> it, uh, it worked. And we're actually in the process of now renting another additional piece of property to take some pressure off of that. So hopefully that will. Oh, work. nice. So. Um, I know in January, we decided to just cut all sales. Um, it was just really nice to take the pressure off from, mm. to, you know, scrounge around for what, you know, we could potentially sell. Um, and it was just a nice break. Um, and I think, you know, that freeze in December just really 
kind of force us to. And I, I would really like to do that every year. Yeah, no, I think that it is, that's something key. I mean, we did take a week or two off this winter and that's having that with no one customers around. And the one thing is we run a multi-day, multiple day a week farm store that's on our property and literally, you know, a couple hundred yards from our house. So that is challenging. We literally have people on top of us every single day. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, even just the aspect of going to markets, I know that can be, that can be a struggle too. just that, that constant pressure and constant having to think about it. And I think, you know, especially with farmers who, you know, during the summer, especially your weeks can be so long, having some weeks in the wintertime, you're doing nothing can be super important. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Hi, this is Nicholas and Jenny. We are the proud owners of Crystal Organic Farm located in Newborn, Georgia. It's at about a, an hour east of Atlanta. I just realized today, actually talking to a friend of mine, this is my 30th year in organic farming. And so we've been certified all along. We raise organic vegetables, some fruits, also medicinal herbs. That's something that we're getting into. And uh, we've always been certified for 30 years. And my mother actually certified in the mid 80s. So this farm has been certified for a long, long time. We eat organic food. We source all local food. We're really into what we eat and where the food comes from. Jay and I, we were talking and going to the grocery store that, that even like organic, you have to read the labels. And uh, the word organic does not mean what it used to mean. And so when the Real Organic Project came on and we talked about it, it seemed like a great fit for us because it seems that they really are trying, the Real Organic Project is trying to, the word organic still to mean what it should mean. And for people like Jenny and I, that are very committed to eating organic. There's a trust factor that just organic has lost for us anyway. So a real organic project uh, idea rhymes with us really well because of how we live our life. Not only because we're organic farmers, but even if we weren't organic farmers, we would seek something like that out. So mm -hmm. I think, yes, also for us, like the word organic has quite literally become super watered down with the introduction of hydroponics and different aspects of, you know, the organic farming. And so this label not only goes back to the roots of what organic farming used to mean, say when Nicholas started 30 years ago, but also, like he said, this reassurance moving forward that what you're getting is true organic product. And also the Real Organic Project looks at the health of the farm as a whole, the health of the employees, or if there's animals on the farm, and I think that's super important as well, because this word regenerative is also kind of being thrown around a lot or perhaps watered down as well. And so when you're looking at the farm as a whole, that's truly what regenerative means. But I feel like the Real Organic Project goes a step further than organic and than the word regenerative. Yeah. And, and one more thing is that certification costs money, organic certification, and is required to be part of the Real Organic Project. But there's so much money tied up in all this. And the fact that Real Organic Project is working on donations, it's not like a, a, an organization that tries to grab more money. Well, it's working from farmers and it, at the grassroots level, started by farmers. There's farmers running it, farmers working for it. Like people that have true experience in farming are the Real Organic Project. It's not just someone sitting behind a desk that's never stepped foot on a farm. Um, and understands what it takes to farm and to farm organically and uh, beyond organically. And that's super important too, that the people working for and working with the Real Organic Project really get that. Um, now, Ian, I want to talk because you actually had a brain, you had brain surgery last year. I mean, a pretty sudden, you had a, a cyst, um, which, you know, burst and, and caused some major challenges. And talk us through a little bit about that, because I know that, probably put a tremendous amount of pressure on you guys as farmers and on as a family. Yeah, for sure. It was, um, I mean, I was born with it, so I, I knew it was there and that it was kind of a, a possibility at any point, but, um, yeah, in January, February, I had like a series of like, where I just have really bad headaches mm. for a while. Um, and I guess providentially it just kind of lined up that, it was like the last wave of COVID or whatever. And so I, I couldn't go into my normal doctor because um, yeah, like 
whatever checklist of symptoms. Some of them were COVID symptoms. So I had to yeah. go to like a, a hospital type clinic. And, uh, you know, I was doing the, the check-in thing there. And before I finished the paperwork, like, all right, let's just get you back here. Let's uh, get this stroke questionnaire out of the way. And I was like, oh, th- this has never happened before. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, um, so it was a, a big wake-up call. You know, got to ride in an ambulance to the, the hospital, needed brain surgery. Um, and then the recovery process from that just kind of takes a really long time. Um, which uh, totally threw our, our whole farm season off. And uh, before we left the hospital, even, I was like, yeah, just cancel all our farm plans for the year. <laughs> yeah. We survived because of the fall planting of flowers. Mm. And that, they're actually, like, we rode that into about June, May or June. May, yeah. And then we started planting summer crops. Um, so we had a little bit of income where I would go to market and sell the flowers. Um, <laughs> so that's kind of how we survived last year. Yeah, and family-wise, too, it took a really big toll because early on in the recovery process, like, I couldn't or anything so Mm -hmm. rachel Mm -hmm. had to ferry me around um i had to go through like all sorts of therapy stuff like physical therapy and speech therapy all that sort of thing to get Mm. back up to like a semblance of normal um yeah yeah so she had to drive me around to that some of those are pretty fun but you know whatever (laughs) and and you have three kids yep yeah So do you have family in the area that was able to help with those or did you have to just bring in other friends and. So yeah, like all my family sister live within 20 minutes and then my parents live within 45 minutes of us. So they were were able to help Mm. out. And then at the farm, just lots of our farmer friends came in to do like weeding field Mm -hmm. work and stuff like that watering yeah just watering stuff like that we yeah couldn't get to it um because of the you know we were going to the hospital and making you know mm-hmm. sure everything was fine so um a lot of people just pitched in yeah now with that so when the, that that surgery would they go in and like remove it or what did they actually do I'm still not sure exactly, but <laughs> you're not sure what you paid all that money for. <laughs> yeah. So there's, um, I was unclear about what they were going to do in the surgery. I should say, um, yeah, no, they have a big scar on top of my head. Um, okay. They went in, but luckily I have hair that covers it. So <laughs> I yeah. guess not. It, it looked pretty cool, but, um, no one gets to see it, but me. Yeah. So they, they went in, they removed it. Um, for the most part, there's still lots of um, fat and oil floating around in mm. there, which is irritating from time to time. Um, but yeah, for the most part, it's out. Yeah. And um, so you couldn't speak right afterwards. So you're just kind of like, I mean, I'm sure, Rachel, for you, there was just a lot of like uh, unknown. Oh, yeah. Um, kind of in the thick of it. You know, you, you just kind of take it one day at a time. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And there were definitely times where I I just didn't know how, you know, it was really hard. And yeah, um, even medication, like changing moods and things. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. The, the, the steroids and stuff they put you on, like, roid rage is real. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So just dealing with that too. I mean, you're on one aspect, Rachel, you're like, you know, bend over helping him trying to get all this stuff taken. Then like, he's just like combatively not, or just like, ah, and you're like, wait a minute, I'm trying to help you here. Yeah. (laughs) Pretty much. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That was a big part of it. And then the other part, just being like super, super weak, like yeah, not being able to do stuff and, and, yeah, that took forever before I could lift like a reasonable amount. Like one day in therapy, I think I did like, oh, I really hurt myself, like just doing a, an unweighted 
squat. Like I mm, felt like yeah. I tore a muscle. I was like, Oh my gosh. Like, yeah. How am I get like, if I'm like this, I cannot farm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so that happened, I think you said in, was that like in January when that happened of last year? Um, I think I went into the hospital February 3rd or 4th. Okay. I had surgery the 8th and then was discharged uh, the 15th of February. And then the therapy process started at the end of March and finished at the end of May. And right at the end of that therapy process, I had started doing some more kind of field work on the farm, but mm-hmm. being helped out by other farmers in the area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you did a, a great job, and I really recommend folks go to your your website, wetnotfarms.com, and to your blog, and just listen, read your um, post on that. But kind of share a little bit. I kind of like summarize that, share a little bit with us. Like, what were your big takeaways from this? Yeah, I mean, it was a big wake-up call, like just in terms of like mortality and frailty, like if you're banking on in five years time, my life will look like this. That's not guaranteed. Like, I mean, nothing is guaranteed. You could, you know, a meteorite could fall through my roof right now and hit me, but yeah, it won't. But, uh, so that, that was a big wake up call just to kind of get so wrapped up that I'm missing out on family life. Like I had just been working way too late at night or into the evenings, like just trying to keep the farm going. And then I'd get home and be wiped out and not able to mm-hmm. like spend time with my wife or kids. And I just felt like, you know, waiting around in the hospital before surgery, it was just like, wow, if this is it, like I've totally blown it. I need to, yeah. <laughs> if I get out, I need to not do that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think part of what you wrote there too, is that, you know, farmer isn't your primary identity. You're, you know, first a husband and father, and then, you know, the the farmer has to be further down the list, even though many times we think it's our primary identity. Yeah. It sucks up as much time as you give it basically. Mm -hmm. So setting a boundary to be like, you get me until like five o'clock and then sorry, farm, you're done. Yeah. Yeah. But it also means that you, <laughs> you prioritize too. It makes it a little bit tighter prioritization. Yeah. I've heard other people talk about that um, kind of constraints in farming mm-hmm. um, where you, you got kids, you got to be out of the farm by four. You'll get everything done by four. Whereas if you got till eight or nine at night, like it's going to take until eight or nine at night. So setting like hard time limits, I think really mm-hmm. helps you like, a, get a bit more done, but B, like, yeah, you you pick the important things in life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You also speak a little bit about your faith too. How did that affect your faith and kind of just, um, you know, that just that whole experience? Yeah, it was definitely like challenged some things like, um, so yeah, first off, I'll just say I'm a Christian. That's what Protestant flavor mm-hmm. Christian. <laughs> um, but yeah, just the way everything happened, I saw a lot of like God's providence there lining that up so that things happened. They were terrible, but in the best way it could have happened, like the, they, I had a mini stroke or whatever at some point, and I don't understand how strokes work, but just the parts of my brain that it affected, like it was literally nothing. Mm. important yeah um and even if it had been something important i don't think it would change how i i feel about that it's not yeah my my faith would have withstood a less positive outcome also he he would work the farm um six days a week and then work like a restaurant job on sunday and we just said, you're not going to work on Sunday. You're going to mm. come to church with the family and you're going to take this day of rest. So that was another big change mm. um, from this. Yeah. Yeah. So, so kind of like um, 
you know, enshrining that day of rest just to make sure that you do have that with the family. I will say, you know, the kids that are, are here, we're, we're very busy with everything we've got going on and they count down like Monday. Oh, uh, it's, you know, six more days till Sunday. Cause that is the family day. <laughs> That's we t- yeah. They know they get a movie and we try to do, you know, it's just them. Um, and actually this Sunday we spur the moment there's a antique, um, I don't know, they call it Antique Village, but it's basically you can rent a little space and they have bingo. And so we took the kids and we made did bingo through the Antique Village and they thought that was just a blast. <laughs> um, nice. Yeah, just a little simple things. But I, I get what you're saying too there though, back to what you said there, Ian, is that you know through this whole thing, God was incredibly merciful in the aspect that you know it could have been way worse, but you know he spared you a, a number of different aspects too. Um, it was one of those things that you, he needed you to go through it, but he was also going to give you some 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 grace in that yeah oh well also the challenge some like beliefs like if you work hard you know god will reward you and you know there's nothing wrong with you know hard work but sometimes you just have to go through a lot of hard stuff and Mm -hmm. god's providence is still in that hard hard times so yeah well i think there's a there's a parable about that um I think there's a couple. I think the one that comes to mind is the parable of the laborers is there were some folks that were laboring literally all day for the same amount of wage as the people that worked an hour. Yep. <laughs> um, and I, I think one of the guilt trips that has been placed on us by the church over the years has been, well, you know, God wants you to do all these things and it's not necessarily about things. It's about the relationship with him. And it's about, you know, the relationships we have with other people in our lives. And I think that is where so often we miss the boat. Yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what would you say the biggest outcome for this has been? We talked about a little bit. Would you say, uh, yeah, share with us, like, what do you feel like the biggest outcome from this going through this as a family has been? I think it's brought us, um, closer together for sure and a bit more thankful for the times we do have mm-hmm. together and just like a little funny story about how sudden going to the hospital was like the night before we watched onward you ever mm. seen that one? Oh yes yeah mm-hmm. yeah so like the main character like dad because he like was in the hospital with a bunch of tubes hooked up but yeah whatever yeah so it was yeah, kind no, of just there's a little bit of a, Oh, look at this. And then, yeah. Uh-huh. I get what you're saying. Yeah. It's definitely brought us closer as a family and more thankful for the times we do have together. And also it's like put an end to the kind of insane work hours. Um, and there, I'd say occasionally there's times when like, you know, coming up, like it's going to rain this day. I need to really, this is my last chance for maybe a month to get like field work done. Mm. So maybe I'll, I'll spend a little bit late then, but like, yeah. And then developing systems to eliminate the need for that sort of groundwork is the the other thing we focus on. Mm-hmm. Um, in therapy, they, uh, they gave them like tools of like how to deal with problems and, um, and just, the way we think about things too. Um, so just uh, kind of using those and um, he's been able to take a step back and look at things um, a little more with, you know, without emotion. Yeah. Less mm-hmm. emotion. That's, that's maybe the biggest thing <laughs> actually. So, yeah. So I guess what you're saying there is then um, just really more putting the whole cold, hard numbers of some things and making decisions a little bit more by um, then, you know, yeah. Well, one of the big things is like you take like an a, emotional, um, not checklist, but survey of how you are. So if I'm upset, going to solve a problem, I need to move it aside and I'll come back to it like maybe even a week later and think about it in a non-emotional, like when I'm calmed down from whatever, like I'll, I'll be able to think of a better solution then than if I'm scrambling to try and figure it out in the heat of the moment, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Gotcha. Yeah. So slowing down the decision-making process, giving a little bit more time for that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, anything else you'd like to share with us before we go? Hmm. Do you got anything, Rachel? <laughs> no, um, I don't. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's totally fine. <laughs> what is your favorite tool on the farm? I guess let's end with that one. Oh, yeah. My Kubota tractor. That's my favorite hands down <laughs> okay all right and then rachel oh uh can i just <laughs> i usually just stick with the dibble okay <laughs> i transplant a lot yeah all right and uh, do you have a specific dibbler you like oh that wooden one ian would know he buys it's a uh, um you get it from earth tools i think it's the Amon or whatever okay. that yeah the handles offset so it's more ergonomic ah yes yeah i'm looking at garden tools right now see if i can it pops up here um with the, just... the metal point <laughs> yes yeah i know which one you're talking about now garden tools here we go about these tools i'm just scrolling down through here hand trowels um Dibbler. Oh, I yes, yes, yes. It's A M M A N N. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Swiss made. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's a little bit offset. I get that. It's slightly crooked handle, more ergonomical. Very yep. cool. Yeah, and Joel's a great guy to do work with. Um, he, uh, yeah, it's good stuff down there. So. Yeah. Well, I like every time you, or not every time, but a lot of times when he called there, like on the phone so <laughs> yes yeah yeah cool. well, and actually you know it's interesting he you can't buy through their website at least you couldn't um for a while and i think it's still true is that you actually have to call in for an order and he says yeah because i want yep. to talk to you and make sure that what you're buying is going to work for you yeah <laughs> um so i find because he could probably double his business if it was available you know when they weren't open because i i great oh, yeah. i say <laughs> most of my time of ordering stuff is not during business hours mm -hmm. um and sometimes the place that gets my business is the place that will either has an online e-commerce presence or they pick the phone after hours so yeah yep <laughs> well ian and rachel thank you so much for coming on i appreciate you coming on and sharing your story and um yeah best of luck for you guys as i'm sure you're still figuring things out as you're, you know, getting through this, but, um, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thanks for sharing and uh, best of luck with this growing season. Cool. Awesome. Thanks. You too. All right. Yeah. Thank you. Cool. Joining me today is Dan from Steward, a mission-driven financial partner for farms across the U.S. Dan, value-added products are exploding right now, and especially farmers are really starting to see the profit in them. Why is that? Well, value-added products give the margin that farmers need to be successful. Selling you know, raw material, raw product at the market price is really challenging. And so if you can have a value-added product branded and sold direct, it really provides viability to the farmer. The challenge is there's a lot of pieces that have to come together in order to be successful. Mm -hmm. I know for us, taking a cucumber that we were getting a dollar for, turning it into a $7 or $9 jar of pickles made a huge difference in our profit margin. Now, there's a lot of steps, though, that you said need to come together. What are those? So the, the difference between value-added product is you're, you're dealing with processing, packaging, labeling, direct sales. And so a, a lot of farms uh, don't necessarily have the infrastructure. They don't have the marketing budget. They don't have all the pieces needed to not only create the products, but push them out into the market. And so we've been working with a lot of farms. We'll, we'll provide a loan for them to build out the equipment and infrastructure needed to, to make the value-added product, to process it and batch it and label it, and then also assist them with USDA grants, such as the value-added producer grant, which can then cover the marketing costs, the labor, softer costs that are hard to finance, but which the farm may not have themselves. So when, when we're looking at value-added products, it's the direction that we support the farms that we fund. That's the direction they should be going over time, more value-added products, better margin, more direct sales. But it takes a lot of uh, alignment with the organization to do that. And you want to make sure there's not too much risk and too many resources uh, expended on that. And so by balancing that with financing and grants and other opportunities that are out there, it can be a really powerful mix for farmers. Mm -hmm. Like that one-two punch to push you over the edge and get you going. I think one of the things that a lot of people 
get frustrated or held back by is a kitchen, you know, those, those facilities. Um, but you know, you can do development even in your own kitchen, as long as you're not selling that product. And then once you get that viability going, then you go find a shared use kitchen or do even build out your own with your help to take it to production level. Now we've worked with some farms on this. Talk a little bit about that. So one of the farms I enjoy telling the story about most is Byler's Heritage Acres. It's an Amish farm in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. We connected them through a chef who had been buying from this farmer for years. He was selling milk through the co-op. The co-op went out of business. So him and other Amish farmers didn't have a market for their product. So Steward provided financing to do value-added processing for dairy to be able to sell butter and cream and yogurt and also help the farmer with a value-added producer grant to cover the labor and operational costs to set that up. And the chef who introduced us to this farmer then also purchased the final product and is selling that in his restaurants and at his shop. And so that was an example of taking a farmer who has a really great product, who's been cut out of the traditional market by you know, intermediaries falling apart, which happens often, and taking it within their own hands to do a value-added product, to cut out the intermediaries, and then get the margin that's needed for viability. Obviously, dairy is a very difficult business, mm-hmm. and you have to be value-add to make the numbers work. Absolutely. If you're looking for a non-traditional, mission-driven financial partner who understands the business of regenerative agriculture, reach out to gosteward.com today. This episode is brought to you by Steward. Steward is transforming agriculture by equipping regenerative farms and food systems with the capital they need to grow. As a mission-driven financial partner, Steward works closely with agriculture businesses to scale their operations, improve the health of their lands and waters, and bolster local to regional food systems. To date, Steward has provided over $15 million in business loans to fund 75 unique projects, backed by more than 1,500 participating lenders. Steward is proud to be a certified B Corp. Seek financing or support a loan campaign at gosteward.com. So there you have it, another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer Podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.